welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name is Tom Rivet-Karnak. And I am still Cristiana Figueres. This time, we're both talking to you from Costa Rica. And we have no Paul Dickinson, sadly. We miss him. That's because he didn't want to come to Costa Rica. That's his own fault. Yeah, you know why that is. Why? He's terrified of the insects. He, I know. He is terrified of little bugs and spiders and butterflies and things like that. I actually think lobsters is his primary fear. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. But we don't have too many of those up here on the mountain. <laughs> Anyway, it's nice to be here in Costa Rica, the country that your father created. Well, that, yeah, I'm not sure that he physically created, but let's say right. ideologically he did guide this country. Well, you know, I have, I was very lucky to just go and spend the last two weeks down on the Caribbean coast here in Costa Rica. And sitting on the beach, I would look north and south along the coast and it looked like an untamed wilderness. And it was just looked like forest as far as the eyes can see. And I said, and what's it, behind that forest? And Tom? then, well, and then tucked into the forest is beautiful little bamboo created huts and things like that. But I said a thank you to your father who created the law that meant that you can't build along the beach. And I thought, if this had been in most other countries, the highway would be right along the coast, all the hotels would be there, etc. Exactly. We have many things to be grateful for to my father. Um, but there's two things actually about the beach. First, that you're not allowed to build on the beach. Um, and secondly, that beaches are public. There is no such thing as a private beach in Costa Rica. Mm. How important is that? So every single beach has to have a public access, even if, let's say, the surrounding area is privately owned. It has to have a public access and everyone has to be able to access that beach. That's very cool. Very cool. Right. So today we are going to be talking later on, you and Paul actually are going to speak to Jesper Brodin, the CEO of Ikea. But I thought just as a way of introducing that, um, and we'll come to sort of some broader issues around corporate engagement on climate, um, we have a lot to be thankful for to Ikea, you and me specifically. And that is in the creation of the Paris Agreement, when I first joined you at the UN, I remember that there was a range of business groups doing very effective and important work, but somewhat uncoordinated. And the IKEA Foundation and our friend Steve Howard, who used to be the chief sustainability officer there, came up with the idea of creating a platform to unify them so that everyone could work collectively in the same direction, which became We Mean Business, now run by our friend Nigel Topping, who we should absolutely get on the podcast soon. And so that to my mind, was a really important part of creating the Paris Agreement because it made this super important voice of business have a much more unified way of engaging in the process. So I thought, given that, we might just start by going into your time as Executive Secretary and why what you found when you first joined after Copenhagen and why you felt it was so important to open the process up and bring others like businesses into that intergovernmental process, which hadn't really happened before. So can you kind of talk us through what you found and what you changed? Yeah, well, that could be a very long conversation. Yeah, you can, yeah. But we're going to summarize it. <laughs> we're going to summarize it. Um, so perhaps it, it would be good to just 
quickly refresh memories that we were coming off um, a disaster, right? Uh, the the Copenhagen uh, meeting had been a, a political disaster. Uh, enough said about that. Um, and, and then in order to reconstruct the process, what was very clear for those of us who were there right after Copenhagen or survivors of Copenhagen, if you will, um, is that that had been substantially uh, a national government conversation only. Hmm. And many things had gone wrong with it. But one of the weaknesses is precisely that it was a national government conversation only. And that it divorced was divorced from the real world, divorced from the real world, from the real economy, from what, you know, what, where money flows and financial decisions and corporate decisions. And it was very clear that national governments are actually not the high emitters of the world. Yeah, It's actually the private sector that are the or if you take it regionally or geographically, it's actually cities and provinces mm. that are the higher emitters. And so it was really quite unhelpful, to put it mildly, um, to have only governments, of course, stipulated by the United Nations that only national governments can sit at the table, okay, but they were deciding on emissions and on policy and corporate decisions that were not really theirs. And, um, and, and so the decision was made quite early on to help governments mm. come to better decisions by mobilizing the private sector as well as subnational governments, um, mobilizing them to pursue their own their own interest in decarbonizing and being helpful to national governments by encouraging national governments to take the needed um, the needed decisions. So it was a quite, um, I mean, now it's very obvious that all of this yeah. needs to be there, but, but it was quite revolutionary at the time. And what happens to an intergovernmental process when you open it up in that way? Because it's like that sort of sunlight that gets brought in of more observation, more participation. How did it change? Well, there was a lot of resistance in the beginning, yeah. right? Um, and and we didn't go from from zero to a hundred um, overnight. We we first invented just as a little trial balloon. We first invented something called momentum for change, mm. um, which was a little competition that we designed to have um, private sector and civil society and finance and all of everyone else who's not a party to the convention, come up with their decarbonization projects and then give them a prize and bring them within the boundary of the United Nations just to begin to open up. Um, and slowly we had more and more uh, support and more and more resistance, right? Mm. Because the more you open a system, um, the more resistance you get. That's just natural for any system. So every time we had to calibrate the space that we were winning for, uh, for private sector, for civil society, for investors, for national, subnational governments, we had to calibrate that with the resistance that we were getting and every time be quite creative in figuring out where can we bring them in without stepping on too many toes. We've yeah. always stepped on some toes, but we couldn't step on all toes. Um, and so we had to figure out, you know, can we step on two or three toes, you know, and certainly not more than five um, <laughs> and, uh, and just always um, calibrate how much we could, uh, we could push in. Yeah. And what do you think happens next? 
Well, you, and Tom, hold, hold, hold on, because yeah. you, you know, you jumped over something really important, and that's when you came into the system. Do you remember? <laughs> I uh, you came in as the head of something that we call the Groundswell Initiative, right. which was um, a uh, a pretty covert operation. We had you in a different building to the building that I was working uh, out of, and uh, that whole Groundswell Initiative was financed not by central governments, government, uh, national governments, but we did separate fundraising and. And we hired people separately, and we put you as a little covert operation over in uh, in a little uh, a little cubby hole over there for you to mo- precisely do that, right? To mobilize all the constituencies going beyond the private sector, all the constituencies who actually could come around and support governments in what we called, if you remember, the surround sound effect. Right. Because what we wanted was for national governments to get to Paris, having looked all the way around them and going, oh my god. Everybody wants us to do this. Mm. We are we're getting absolutely astonishing support from every single sector, from every single nook and cranny. Um, and that's how you came into the story. Right, right. And but I remember, and it was very instructive to me, both in terms of the surround sound of more business ambition leading directly to more national confidence, but also the specifics of how much national leaders listen to business leaders. And that's worked against us, right, in some ways where, you know, big oil and others have lobbied against progress. But once you get progressive companies in there being vocal about what they want, it can really move the needle. And I think that's why we were able to be successful. And again, you know, a big part of that came back to IKEA stepping up, funding women business, creating this unified business voice that was so important in the creation of Paris. Well, that was really important because by, by that time we had many different business organizations uh, with different different stands and different uh, different positions, um, but really not being able to make an impactful contribution to the mm. conversation. And so the fact that the IKEA Foundation was uh, was really willing to um, step forward into practically into a void um, and recognize that it was important to not to quelch the different voices from the private sector, to allow them all to continue in their different um, interests and their different needs, but to bring them under one bigger roof. Hmm. Um, and and that was We Mean Business. And, and that was really very wise and very visionary of them. And when you look at it, the model has been followed by other sectors, right? You see the same model being followed by the investment sector. You see the same model um, being followed, in fact, by other constituencies, cities, cities exactly cities now under the global covenant of mayors, um, which doesn't mean that the organizations underneath cease to exist, but rather that all of the organizations underneath contribute to the one more unified voice. And it's been incredibly helpful. Yeah. So we'll talk to, or you'll go and talk to Jasper with with PD in a minute, but what happens next, right? Because what's interesting... What's PD? Is that Post Data or Paul Dickinson? <laughs> Sorry, Paul Dickinson. I used to work at CDP where we had PS, Paul Simpson yeah. and Paul Dickinson. So. I know, I know, I know. Just, <laughs> just questioning. So, um, but I'm also curious about, you know, in 2015, business ambition was important, but also business as a lever to persuade governments was super important. But now we're at a point where there's probably no business in the world, probably... Every CEO could march into the White House and tell Trump they want the U.S. to remain in Paris and he would ignore them. Well, that's true. Right? So there is a limit to that power. 
but their ambition is still probably more important because there will be voids left by national governments. So what happens next to this business voice in this intergovernmental world in this different, more challenging political context we're in? Well, I think we've moved from a business voice to a business decision. Mm. Uh, And it it is no longer only about the business voice, but rather about business decision because certainly enlightened business leaders, but, uh, but incrementally also the middle chunk, not just the early, you know, movers, but the middle chunk of uh, CEOs are really understanding that this is in their own interest, that Mm -hmm. this is the way that um, they will have business continuity. This is the way that they will be able to attract talent. This is the way they're going to be able to protect their assets uh, long-term. And this is is what um, consumers want. And so from a long-term perspective, they are increasingly moving in to um, adopting science-based targets or a 2050 carbon neutrality target or 2040, as we've just recently heard from Amazon. Um, And, you know, what I think is exciting is that it's no longer business just giving their opinion as in buying a New York Times, you know, full full page like we had way back in um, 2015. It's now their corporate decisions and their corporate strategy. Uh, And that's a very, very different position to be in uh, as compared to 2015. And I really think that they are overtaking governments um, on the fast lane. Uh, and they're closer to to civil society. They're closer to customers. They're closer to clients. They're closer to citizens. In the case of cities, um, and they are overtaking, uh, which is actually a good thing to do because it's going to take a while for this very complicated geopolitical situation to iron itself out. And while we have all of those wrinkles in the geopolitical situation, it does seem like corporate leaders as well as city leaders and state leaders are going to be able to overtake on the uh, left lane or on the fast lane, depending on whether you're in the US or the UK, <laughs> but on the fast lane. Or anywhere else, exactly. Awesome. Well, there's no one better to talk us through it than Jesper Brodin and Ikea. Let's go and talk to him. Let's do it. Jasper, thank you very much uh, for coming and joining us on Outrage and Optimism. We're very excited to to have you here. And, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm replaying the very, very moving Mm. and honestly groundbreaking event that you were kind enough to invite me uh, to, uh, where you announced your new aspirations, your Mm. new commitments as uh, one of the most important companies in the world. So maybe I I won't steal your thunder. Um, (laughs) I think I'd rather you have uh, summarized for our listeners what your your Mm. new aspirations and your new commitments are. Well, basically, I can say thank you uh, back for joining us uh, on that uh, that occasion, which was an important moment for us in actually not only turning to ourselves and the actions, but actually taking our responsibility to communicate, to share, and to involve and engage more people. So to put it simple, what we have uh, committed to do is to, by already 2030, to make sure that we have a positive impact on people and planet. And as much as that can sound uh, philosophical, that's broken down into goals, Uh, science-based targets and uh, step deliveries, both when it comes to human uh, uh, capital and the movement, but also into climate, circularity, and we're on our way. 
a couple of things that I, I want to pull from uh, from that moment. Um, one was your commitment to circularity. So you're um, beginning to experiment with some of your products that you will buy back mm-hmm. um, after we've used them for 300 years and mm-hmm. then decide that they that we're not going to use them anymore. Um, I, I'm wondering, have, have you started that? Have you had any response? Because I thought... What an important new business model for a company like IKEA that traditionally has hmm. been known for use it and then at some point discard it. And you're stepping completely against that and say, no, 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 use and reuse and reuse. And yeah. so uh, uh, can you walk us through that? I, uh, definitely. You can say uh, at the heart of this, it's, uh, which is an, this is an incredibly important topic because I think there is at least two things we are getting wrong in our dialogue in society. And, and one, of course, we, we want to shift the um, consumerist model of the 1900s when we were naive and we were using resources in, in a way that's not going to be healthy tomorrow. Now, to the point, why are we doing this, except for that is the right thing to do, except for that our customers are demanding from us, it's in order to serve many people within wallets. If you don't have circularity built into your model, you're going to be expensive. Because virgin raw material um, in the 1900s model is not going to be available to that price level. So we are running to get uh, mattress recycling, to get plastic back in a value chain and to be in the forefront in order to actually serve people. So what is my experience going to be in the near future? Five years from now, I walk into Ikea and what's my, how is my experience going to be different? Well, hopefully already uh, our ambition is that already in one year from now, we will be massive in communication, telling what we do, sharing what the whole network of IKEA is doing in order to address anything from food to raw material to actually usage of products in Life at Home. But what you're going to do is uh, to be invited to be part of um, uh, some of the activities, for example, bringing back your sofa. Uh, that we can take back your sofa when we sell the new one, that we can have your mattress. I still have done. a sofa from you. I've used it for... 12 years. 12 years. Will you still take it back? Uh, well, we, we I'm could, still uh, loving it. Well, you know what? I, I, I need to see a picture before I okay. tell you the price here. <laughs> so fair if enough, it, if the cat enough. or the dog spin it or stuff like that. <laughs> but you know, that, interesting enough, you, you can say there is a market which we are also exploring, um, which we discussed in, in uh, Germany when we met, which yes. is about renting leasing furniture. Right. And we, we're testing that. It's too early for me to say uh, this is an amazing model, but the interest is amazing. I can imagine. Um, and then you have different categories of people, students, people who are on a short-term assignment in a city, maybe for a year, who don't want to commit to set up a new home. Uh, they, they're interested. Some business-to-business also are interested to uh, be part of different ways of engaging with furniture. So, yeah. And then you can say, in the back end, we're going to do some things that might not be so exciting for you as a consumer. You won't think about it. But for us, it's revolution. And that is... The supply chain of IKEA is implementing new ways of assembling furniture. So instead mm. of uh, basically screwing it together, you're going to click furniture together. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> it's actually, we already have the first series out. That means, for example, the um, the Ingo table, I, I, I assemble it for in 23 minutes myself. And I'm good. I'm practiced the key. man, right? So I click the Ingo together, the new one, in two minutes. In two minutes. Yes. And, and what about those who are not so practiced yet? Uh, well, when it comes to the, the clicking of the furniture, it's going to be easier for everybody to do that, for sure. And the point is also that it requires less material. Mm-hmm. It's also possible then to 
disassemble. De-unclick it. Exactly. And then you, again, so basically, uh, we will not uh, destroy furniture by uh, assemble, oh, disassemble, right, assemble. So right, it has right, some, right. some points in that. So yeah, we that, that has times. been a weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. good point. So we have um, uh, lots of people working in business listening to the podcast. They will have a lot of respect for the leadership of IKEA, which is extremely well known. Can I ask a about some of your innovation in terms of introducing sustainability into the country managers mm. and, and changing the way yeah. you yeah, uh, organize sustainability in the I, organization. I mean, it was one of the, actually, one of the discussions we had recently. And actually, the, the idea came uh, from the discussion in Germany. We need to step up the game as leaders. And I think now we are at the tipping point. Um, we shouldn't spend our efforts and energy on the people who deny climate. Uh, and so I have no energy for that. I and, have no uh, time for that. <laughs> no, no time for that either. So the boat is leaking. And if somebody claims it's not, then let them think that. We will uh, also not spend too much time in people debating. Uh, but actually, we will join forces where people are prepared to roll up the sleeves and take action on resolving the issues. And that means that uh, it's no longer um, a specialist movement, but it is something that every business leader is, uh, in my a group in my community need to step up. So therefore we have uh, um, appointed all retail country managers to become our chief sustainability officers. And they love it. Mm. At least they tell me they love it. I hope they do. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but then they, they, you know, equip me with the tools so I can lead this agenda and do a better job. But it's a mass movement that we are taking throughout the company. So that's complete integration of sustainability into yes. the mainstream management of the organization. Yes, yes. Both actions and communication. Quite extraordinary. Mm. And you talked about communications. You're going to, you, what was it, you said massive, you're going to become massive in communications. Can you talk more about that? Because I think there is a whole role for corporations to kind of help the public um, kind of do the right thing, which they want to do, but they, maybe they don't know how. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very big uh, topic. And we had to look ourselves a bit in the mirror because we've been very silent. And part of that, I think, is uh, an overplayed humbleness on our side, to be honest. Um, but then we've been over and over again by world leaders been told that you need to, you're big, you need to take your responsibility. And then you need to communicate to bring hope and solutions mm. to, to the world. And we have accepted that. We're uh, learning how to do that. Um, but again, if I give you an example, uh, uh, about a year ago, we made a research with 14,000 people in 14 markets just to find out that the world uh, concern about climate is it's, it's all over. And it's very coherent if you go from Shanghai to London to uh, New York, uh, so to say. So people are worried. And more than 90% of people we asked are concerned about the climate change or, or really worried. Only 3% know what they can do about it. So the gap in society, which goes uh, to adults, uh, show me what can I do that can actually have an impact. Um, so this is, uh, except for, you can say, in our responsibility, which we divide into parts, what we need to do for our own operations and then the bonus, which is a big bonus, we hope, is how can we inspire a billion people to a more sustainable life at home? And if I may also say, if you take that gap to the youth movement as well, uh, where there is a, a huge gap today in society where also the kids are stepping up the game um, and uh, sharing with all of us a consciousness and a worry um, but at the same time, don't have the toolbox and don't necessarily know all the good things happening. So we're also trying to bridge that gap. So we had yesterday actually a, uh, uh, the first uh, meeting we've done with uh, CEOs and uh, youth leaders to try to bridge that gap through uh, conversation and learning from each other. 
And I think I quoted to you when uh, when we were together in in um, in I think your flagship sustainable store in Germany. Um, I quoted you what many friends of mine, mm-hmm. younger friends, and sometimes even my own generation, um, and which, which I think places a huge responsibility on your shoulders. Um, and that is when I ask them. So what are you going to do in your new home? Because they move from one country to that. What are you going to do? The answer in many occasions is, I don't know. I'm going to go to Ikea to see what I think. It's the think piece that I think is so important. Because it's not just, I'm going to go to Ikea to see what furniture I find. No, it's to see what I think. Now, I don't... I don't have a sense that mm. that is just used flippantly. Mm. I think the huge responsibility on IKEA shoulders, to your credit, mm-hmm. is that you really do with your stores, with your business model, with who you are, your identity, and how you have educated us as mm. consumers, you're really moving us how we think. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a huge responsibility, mm-hmm. huge because it's not just I'm going to use different products. You are literally mm-hmm. moving the thinking of your customers and all their families and friends who always come uh, to a different way of thinking. Jasper, mm-hmm. that is yeah. that goes beyond your products. Yeah, it does, and I, I think it's also like the um, on our worst days uh, we are perceived as a transactional company selling stuff. And we resist that, right? Because our business model is about improving lives for people with big big dreams, big needs, uh, thin wallets. Um, last time I was in a home visit myself was in Bulgaria a week ago. A lovely family with two kids, uh, 400 euro after tax uh, to spend on everything. And then you get, you, you understand, on 60 square meter, a home with lots of love, but lots of needs. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And uh, they, just like everybody on this planet, have more shoes than uh, space to save it. And then you start saying, and they, like everybody else, almost everybody else on this planet, want to know that the choices they make are the good ones and the right ones. So here we need to step up the game. We need to tell the stories. We need to instill confidence in that uh, the solution that we provide will be better uh, from a climate perspective and from a human perspective. Mm. And you can and you do now to inspire other businesses. Can you say that there's a business model around this that you've demonstrated that you prove works? Christiana says you're taking people uh, uh, towards sustainability, which is great. But is the business model supporting that? Definitely. I mean, this is what we need to talk about uh, between companies also, because there is, uh, I think, my advice to companies is to uh Take a bit of the risk and the leap to start by committing to what's right. Uh, commit, set your targets when it comes to climate and other areas, and then find the solution. Let time be a friend. Even if we are in a hurry, uh, we have uh, maybe only a decade, but but some things can take three or five or seven or ten years to resolve. But it starts with the commitment because yep. you believe. Um, and then uh, what we discover is that the solutions come. And uh, though we are not yet at a place where we have full coverage for our commitment. We still have a couple of things we need to crack along the way. Solutions present themselves. And at this point, we would say the the crocodiles are not in the water that we are looking at. So to say they are where we stand. Because if we don't <laughs> change the, the business model, uh, we will become expensive. Mm-hmm. Any IKEA product today might be at uh, 65% of the total price is maybe raw material. And... 
if you look in the future, we're going to go from 7 to 10 billion people on this planet to share resources. If you don't have an idea on how to do that, you're going to get expensive. So you lose your customer base? Of course we will. Of course things are going to get expensive where we lose customers unless we uh, um, build the new business model. Yeah. And with that belief, I think if you believe that, the question is timing. Uh, and then uh, that's where we need to talk to governments, uh, to leaders. We're going to meet with the EU leaders today to say, can we have a unified take on how the Green Deal in Europe uh, mm-hmm. is going to look? So we're not half committed, but we go all in. That makes it easier for us as companies to get yeah. clarity to act. These type of dialogues will be important. I, I always think it's wonderful that at the United Nations today, we have great companies like yours. So, you know, you, you said it. What is your message for government? What do you want to see from government? So uh, help us to create level playing field uh, between countries, which is not an easy ask uh, in today's political environment. Help us to be long term, because uh, climate uh, cannot basically withstand political left and right swings, uh, because we need to invest and we need to know that we're guided towards um, 10 years at least uh, direction where we can trust the political leaders to to, uh, stay with the direction. Uh, for example, in energy, if we go and invest in, in uh, renewable, which we recently announced that we actually have reached um, and exceeded our target to cover now uh, investments covers more than our own operations and 2.5 billion euro in wind. Now, if the landscape of legislation would change uh, to the disadvantage, of course, we would be uh, we would be suffering financially. And I don't, I'm not saying that I'm afraid of that, but it's just an example to show we need to have consistency. Mm-hmm. So that that's what um, governments need to do. Uh, clarity of mm-hmm. uh, long-term regulation, totally understood. Um, what, um, how has your new commitment and your aspiration affected other companies upstream in your supply chain, mm. so those that supply to mm. you, have they stepped up to the plate? Because I'm assuming that you're putting mm. some mm. pressure on them. Uh, if they don't, if they don't assume the same responsibility, you won't be able to continue purchasing from them. I think it's a transformation, and again, there is a lot of assumptions, right? When, when since I've been born out of the supply chain of IKEA, I know uh, many of our suppliers well, and amazing uh, visionary leaders, practical people. Uh, people have always been into leading change and I mean in the change that we're in now one of the biggest the most proud thing I've been part of in, in IKEA is to implement a code which we call iWay which is then both covering social aspects and environmental aspects it took 10 years to implement it's all over in our supply chain and it's world class it didn't cost it saved money it made the industries upstream retain talent rather than losing it. And it had lots of benefits down the road. Uh, so from a timing perspective, you need to be a bit ahead of the curve and believe. And then uh, definitely we will do this together with people, both up and downstream. Mm. And the last question from me is, is you know, is, it's, a, it's an awkward question, this, because it's, it's cultural, <laughs> but um, is climate change, sustainability or, or climate change, is it a political issue or is it a, like a public safety issue? I mean, how do you view it? Is your company getting involved in something political or are you doing something that's just in the general good, like, like health and safety? I'm going to express an opinion. And then, then uh, in, in my view, I think it's really important uh, to not make it political. Um, I was reflecting on the youth movement. If that would be disrupted into a political movement, we can all discuss uh, political sides to take it, but we we simply cannot allow ourselves to take sides in the climate uh, topic. We all need to 
accept uh, the facts and the issues. And we basically need to hook arms and resolve things. That's where we need to put our energy. So what we, we do is we have um, launched um, a manifesto, if you like, which we call Action Speaks, where we say, you know, good intentions are great. Uh, uh, words give them power. But in the end of the day, it's action that speaks the loudest. And then how do we do that with speed and collaboration? How do we focus on impact? And how do we also as a company, together with uh, like-minded people like the Unilevers of the world, how do we prove that sustainability is good business, not, not, uh, not a premium, um, which will be an incredibly important part of, of our uh, journey and role? Mm. Well, let me congratulate you also uh, for setting a 1.5 degree science-based target. That's very impressive and offers a model to others. Well, we, we are like yourselves. We're optimists. Uh, so, uh, uh, and sometimes you need to be uh, consciously naive, take the first step, and then you find the solutions. Where's your outrage? Uh, my outrage comes from fear. And mm. my, it's, to be honest, it's... Um, mostly triggered by my three teenagers, mm -hmm. my, my 17, 15 and 13 year. Uh, and in particular, when they come home and they, uh, in some discussions, lack hope. Mm. Is, oh. this, is, this going, is this going to work or is it going bad? And of course, I love that uh, today the, the kids are so updated in the problems, but they are not being updated on the solutions. Yes. So I feel an urge and a stress to, in my outreach, to actually breach the gap, in particular with young people, mm -hmm. to not to create illusions, but to say, before you make your assumptions, have a look at these innovations, have a look in how we have reached these and that, mm -hmm. the, those uh, targets. And then we can talk. Mm -hmm. And then please uh, uh, challenge us, and, uh, uh, but also join us where there is movement and where there is hope, because mm -hmm. the, we cannot have um, lack of faith and hope now. No, exactly. We need to be optimists. Yeah, we can't let that outrage paralyze us, because no. then we get nowhere. Jasper, what a delight to have you here with us. It's always um, inspiring to, to chat with you. Um, and um, I will send you a picture of my sofa, but I'm not ready to part with it yet because I'm still loving he it. He didn't promise yeah. he would take it. He wanted to examine it. That's right, that's right, that's right. We could uh, start the negotiation. So let's have a look at it. That's it. <laughs> well, I still want to keep it, but if I decide that I want to recycle it, yeah. I'll send you a photograph. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much thank for being for with us. Thank you for your Brilliant. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Great. So that was an amazing conversation with Jesper Brodin. Um, what do you what did you leave that with? Well, you know, I IKEA was anyway before Jesper Brodin was in very good hands. Um, but now with this uh, new CEO, uh, I'm I'm quite relieved that IKEA will continue its leadership, and uh, it's really quite inspiring to uh, to see what he's doing. Um, but you know, fundamentally, I am left with a lot of optimism on uh, how we are really beginning to put so much more reality into the concept of the circular economy. And just a few days ago, the U.S. released a report, no, a roadmap, a roadmap to the circular economy in the U.S. But you would think that the U.S. would be almost like the last country to look at circular economy, and you would think that the European Union would be the first or something like that. What I think is fascinating about what IKEA is doing is that in changing their business model from a strictly sale model to uh, now experimenting with 
renting furniture. They have completely transformed their relationship to materials and to customers, to building materials or to uh, all of the raw materials that they use and their relationship to customers. Mm. Because, but just by changing sale to rent. Because now they're going to be building furniture very differently. They are going to be costing furniture very differently. They're going to have to implement very different value chain processes to pick up furniture, refurbish, re-renovate, re-you know, renew furniture and get it ready for the next customer. Um, and so it requires a huge transformation inside IKEA. But for customers, what a fantastic mental transformation this is because honestly, Ikea fantastic as it is. And I, you know, I've spoken about my Ikea couch that I keep on taking from one country to another, <laughs> but that, that is not the typical Ikea furniture. The typical Ikea furniture piece is one that you buy, you use, and then you discard when you move right, or classic. you discard, yeah. you know, when it just doesn't stand up anymore. So Ikea furniture in the past has been, I think, associated, and I hope Jesper doesn't kill me for this, um, but it has been associated with use, you know, buy, use, discard. Hmm. Um, and the fact that he is really trying to change that uh, for customers and to make pieces of furniture, not a one-use furniture piece, but rather a several-use. That is a hugely transformational. Yeah. Just think, Tom, if everything that we buy and use, if we did not use it as a single-use, we have this campaign against single-use plastic, right? Why don't we have a campaign against single-use everything? Mm. Everything that we buy and use, we should absolutely adamantly insist that we ourselves are not going to single use it, yeah. that we're going to multiple use it. That would be a huge transformation. It's, it's, I mean, in a completely different way, it reminds me of the conversation with Ethan Brown that, you know, they try to make beef 10%, 5% more efficient, grass-fed, whatever else, then suddenly 93% more efficient in the land use change. Whereas, you know, you can make your furniture, you can make it more efficient, you can make it in a different way, etc. but you're going to be taking 1% or 2% here and there. Suddenly, it, you move to a different economic model where it's rented rather than owned, and you've completely changed the numbers. It's just a different world. That's, that's where the really exciting stuff exists. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's where we start to move into the exponential, right? We yeah. keep on talking about the exponential. Um, but that's what is so exciting about this transformation, that we're beginning to move into that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, thanks for being here, everyone. That was a great conversation. We really appreciate you dialing in. We'll see you next week. Bye. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, and Zoe Cholacantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback podcast at globaloptimism.com so many of you have been writing in and we do try to respond to every email thanks for that kind of feedback we really appreciate it please keep them coming we'll see you next week <laughs>